Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 2008, when my guest Jonathan Zimmerman received a teaching award, his dean introduced him by telling the Assemble audience what he had written. As he writes, I don't begrudge her for that at all. What else could she go on, really? She had never been to one of my classes, and even if she had, how would a single visit or two help her say anything meaningful or important about my instruction? What other evidence could she invoke? What did she know about me as a teacher, really? What do any of us know about that? The answer provided by his new book is sometimes not very much. In The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America, he chronicles the ups and downs of teaching in American colleges, the great teachers, the lazy teachers, the complaints by students, the attempts at reform, the denial that such a thing as mysterious as teaching is capable of reform, and then the recurrence of the entire cycle until for the battered reader, it seems that time has become a flat circle. And I have to admit that reading the book is like drinking a one or two good or three good dry martinis. It is stimulating. It is witty. And then uh, a couple hours later, you enter into a haze of depression. John Zimmerman, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. So this is uh, uh, this kind of checks a lot of historically thinking boxes. Uh, It's it's history. It's history of something that you would think there'd be a history about. but there isn't. And it's a lot about teaching uh, history, which you and I are very much concerned with. So before we begin, I'd, I'd like you to like repeat some of the things you were just saying to me in the, uh, let's call it the green room. Um, in one of the footnotes, you say there is no comprehensive um, history of American college teaching. And I was saying to you, well, John, I think this is it. You just wrote it. Um, but you were expressing to me your surprise when you went to look for a book on the history of college teaching. Yeah, I mean, I was totally surprised. Uh, After I imagined the book, my first step, like any other historian, was to find out what the other books were on the subject, uh, frankly, to see if I had anything else to say. And and I was just shocked that there wasn't a single soup-to-nuts history of this subject. There are thousands and thousands of histories of higher education and colleges and universities. And obviously, within those histories, um, there are, uh, you know, references and discussions of teaching. Um, many of which I drew on in my book, frankly, but there's not a single monograph, a single volume devoted to the subject. This is the first one. And I want to emphasize, I hope it's not the last. Its subtitle is A History of College Teaching in America. It is not the. Um, it's really the first one that somebody was able to do. But my strong hope is that there will be several afterwards. So do you have a hypothesis of why this is the first? <laughs> well, in some ways, that hypothesis is contained in the book itself, which is that yes. starting in the early 20th century, the academy, and specifically the professors who worked with the academy, they valued research um, uh, increasingly as the 20th century went on. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, they, they, they paid attention insofar as they, uh, you know, they, they studied the university. They paid attention to things other than teaching. Um, in part because of their bias against teaching. Well, let's begin with, um, I I began the intro with an anecdote that you tell, a personal anecdote, but you also begin with a sort of historical anecdote. Uh, And 
basically describes how Max Weber was wrong. So yeah. um, let's let's begin there. How was Max Weber wrong in his uh, perspective on American higher education, about which he knew uh, quite a lot, uh, yes. actually? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he knew quite a lot about quite a lot, actually. Yes, he did. Too mm-hmm. much into the weeds. Weber was very concerned about the German academic situation because in Germany, professors were evaluated and paid based on the number of students they could attract to their classes. And Weber, who very much valued science and research and um, you know what he called objective scholarship, he felt like this was very bad news for that profession. Um, uh, because you know the best scholars didn't necessarily attract uh, the largest number of students. Um, and the professors attracted the large number of students weren't necessarily the best scholars. Um, and I, uh, what he was wrong about was imagining the same was obtaining in America. He said, oh, and by the way, over in America, you've got the same thing going on. You know, um, uh, there people are hired into research positions, but they also have to do this teaching stuff and their career is going to depend on how many students they enlist. And that turned out to be wrong. It, it, it doesn't and it didn't. Yeah. So how did it turn out to be? I mean, it's extraordinary in many ways that uh, here we had imported the research model very self-consciously from Germany, um, even prior to the founding of Johns Hopkins. Uh, yes. There are already German PhDs um, starting to be sprinkled around American higher ed. And yet uh, Germany was in some ways, perhaps it was because we had imported that aspect, Germany still had certain older, even medieval aspects, uh, like uh, professors being promoted based on student attendance. Yeah, yes. And, and, and also they had an incredibly hierarchical uh, system where only a couple of people could be like full professors and everybody else was kind of the equivalent of what we would call an instructor. Yeah. It is also, it says something, and this is not part of your book, so I'm not, uh, uh, but it says something interesting um, that the bureaucratization of American higher education has been a very long process, that the history is not since, oh, 1980, as some yeah. of us tend to think think of it. It certainly has skyrocketed. The The numbers are clear on that. Yes. Um, but th- there's been a very long iron cage of bureaucracy um, <laughs> uh, that's been, has been constructed over a very long period of time. Right. But see, Al, here's the second thing Babel was wrong about. Babel was obsessed with bureaucracy for appropriate reasons, because he felt it defined a certain kind of modernity or rational modernity, as he called it. Um, And what he imagined was that because American universities were very steadily building these big bureaucracies, that that bureaucracy would also regulate and inflect teaching. Hmm. And it didn't. Um, it regulated and inflected lots of different things, but teaching remained uh, in the zone that Weber would call charismatic, um, very much depending on the personality of the people in the room and very lightly, if at all, regulated by bureaucracy. Uh, one of the delights of the book is our quotations, uh, which um, I think I've already said this, but if I remove the date, People might think they came within the last 20 years sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and to, to tie into that, one of the, here, here's one of them. Tradition sanctions the laissez-faire policy with regard to college teachers. To break down the policy would probably cause deep resentment in many quarters. Yeah. That's from 1911. Yep. Yep. 
And, and it's interesting, and this was also something that is Dave Weber, that um, I, I, despite the growth of bureaucracy, professors had almost full independence within their own classrooms. And so during the same era, you already see quotes like, you know, the classroom is the castle, you know, mm-hmm. a man's home is his castle. Um, and the other thing that you see, even at the dates you're talking about, right around the, the time of the formation of the American Association of University Professors and the development of the concept of academic freedom, you already see people invoking academic freedom as a defense of that classroom yeah. Um, which was deeply troubling to me, and I see it throughout the 20th century. And deeply troubling because actually I'm a zealot about academic freedom. Anybody who's read my work will know that because I think academic freedom is absolutely central to the development of knowledge and also to democratic norms at the university. And because I'm so zealous about it, it's deeply troubling, upsetting to me that somebody would invoke it and balderize it in a way that just basically means they can do whatever the hell they want. Yeah, academic it, freedom it, absolutely. doesn't extend to you being a crappy teacher. Mm. <laughs> There's no but, academic freedom to do that, but indeed it was invoked in that idiom. Yeah, what's it, that was one of the the many moments where around like sometime in mid morning I, I started thinking about drinking heavily, um, yeah. because that was always my fear that that's. Because one sees that, you know, even in with my limited time in department meetings, one sees the invocation of ac- academic freedom for, um, shall we say, le- less than than high minded um, principal points. Absolutely, uh, for, for means of personal defense. To find that it had gone back to the very beginning of the concept was unsettling. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the idealization of, uh, let's set a baseline here with the idealization of late 19th century or teaching, or not just the idealization, but late 19th century American college teaching at its best, and then the unfortunate realities uh, yeah. and, sim- and similarities. So one of the many things you do with it in this is track down certain uh, academic anecdotes that get passed around. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out the, the story, maybe some future book about uh, Battles being so bitter because the stakes are so small, but um, y- you have the 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 mar- uh, that a ideal college is Mark Hopkins at one end of a log and a student at the other, which you trace to of all places Delmonico's restaurant in 1871 and a speech by a future American president. Go. Yeah, yes, and the future American president was James Garfield, who had been a student of Mark Hopkins at Williams College, and um, I. That, that quote um, uh, has become in some ways a symbol, not just of Hopkins, but of the 19th century, um, because what it puts the accent on, of course, is, yes, the professor and the personality, right? Um, Garfield was actually speaking in a fundraiser, which is interesting and ironic, because yeah. what he's saying is, look, you know, people are going to ask you for money for bricks and mortar and to make a nice new gymnasium or a library. Um, but really, the most important thing is the professor, is the teacher. Now, Mark Hopkins is interesting in a, for a number of other reasons, one of which is, you know, like lots of people in the antebellum era, which is really when he taught, um, he had very little formal um, schooling, uh, not for a professor. I mean, he, he, uh, um, uh, he had like a two-year medical degree and, and uh, you know, a two-year divinity degree. 
And this was enough for him to be not just a professor at Williams College, but eventually the president or prexy, as he was called. And there were several 19th century presidents or prexies who were famous as teachers uh, because the schools were so small. They knew every student. And they also typically taught the capstone course, which had a title like moral philosophy or natural philosophy. See, this is well before the kind of hyper-specialization that kicks in with the German PhDs and with laboratory and archival research. These people were expected to be um, a genial generalist, I think you could call them. Um, mm -hmm. And what Mark Hopkins was famous for was for asking questions. Um, uh, Sam McCapp and Armstrong, who later founded Hampton College and was a student of, of Prexies, said, you know, um, what was brilliant about Hopkins was he always said to you, why do you think that? <laughs> and he would keep asking you that, you know, um, and when he saw you on the quad, he would ask you that. <laughs> the small thing, though, is that there were very few Mark Hopkins. Yeah. In many ways, there, there, Mark Hopkins, there are always there are always few Mark Hopkins. Yeah, it's Hopkins, it's really hard to ask why do you think that repeatedly. <laughs> uh, it requires a certain psychological armor in, in the teacher, which uh, you know. Yes, yes, but but he was not a scholar, and proudly so. Um, this is weird to get your arms around, but Mark Hopkins often boasted that he didn't read books. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, you know, try getting tenure now on that platform. Um, you know, he read the newspaper and, and uh, you know, um, I, I, he read and delivered sermons, um, but he was in no way a scholar. Um, and, you know, he assigned very little reading because what he imagined was that reading might actually pollute people's minds or might actually um, uh, uh, make them less inquisitive by inserting certain ideas in their heads. And he wanted them to be kind of blank slates because he thought this Socratic method would work best in that situation. So he, he is a very serious Platonist in some ways. I mean, yeah. he is like Socrates drawing out the basic Euclidean proofs from the stable boy. Absolutely. And, and the students spoke of him as Socrates as well. You know, I mean, that was a he, very kind of common analogy that people gave. Uh, but again, I don't want any of your listeners to come away thinking that's how 19th century pedagogy worked. No, because because he's also he's also draw he's also basing his method on the fact that even at Williams, I, I imagine, uh, people have been drilled almost to death with the recitation method. Right. Um, could so, you explain that? Yeah. Well, uh, here's what's interesting. Lots of people ask questions. In fact, almost everybody asks questions. But in the recitation method, as you referred to, they were canned questions. Um, so you would have somebody memorize something uh, before the 1830s or 40s. It was often in Latin and Greek. Um, often they had no idea what its meaning was, <laughs> uh, uh, depending on the situation. And you would ask them kind of canned and predictable questions about it and ask them often literally to recite. That is... Um, now, Al, can you please recite, you know, pages 31 and 32 of Pliny or uh, Cicero or Tacitus or whatever we had you memorize? Um, uh, and the question and answer had kind of a, um, a, a call and response feel to it. You know, um, it was highly ritualized and um, it, 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 it didn't have that kind of Socratic element of exploration that Mark Hopkins became famous for. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the result, uh, the result of this was um, professors hated teaching recitations. So at Harvard and every other place they could, they hired the 19th century equivalent of the adjunct. Yes, yes. That's my lesson. The tutor. Yeah. And the tutors were, they, they were the most hated people of all um, uh, because they were often the ones who drilled you and penalized you if you answered poorly or incorrectly. But they had barely more formal education than you did. And they were also often enjoined to be the in loco parentis, i.e. the parent substitute in the dorm or wherever it was that you lived. Um, and so tutors were just reviled. And they were the uh, target of all kinds of nasty and sometimes funny practical jokes. Um, uh, uh, if a tutor was courting a young lady in the town, you know, the, uh, the students would go into the classroom uh, before class and write her name all over the blackboard. Um, uh, you know, or, you know, put a cow in their room one mm. and have the cow defecate there. Or, you know, my, grandfa my grandfather did that actually at seminary. So anyway, I just went, it's a very common thing. You get, get a bunch of farm boys onto a college. They start looking for a cow. <laughs> yes. It was mad cat. It was zany. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the recurring themes in, um, in the book is student protests, student riots. Um, and uh, it's really interesting for those of us who look back at such things through the lens of the sixties um, to realize that student protests have been going on for a long time, a long, even long, even before the time that you, where you begin. Um, and they've usually been, a lot of them have been about a bad college condition. Actually, the yeah. vast majority have been about bad college conditions and even about teaching yeah. and bad teaching. Yeah. And, and we'll get to the sixties in a bit, but there's, there's a very interesting sort of, that is actually in many ways, the root of the free speech movement as well. Right. Um, but could you, could you speak about these early riots? Yeah. Well, the riots in the 19th century, which were endemic, I mean, they happened everywhere. And sometimes like half of the class would be expelled. Um, yep. They were mostly about, as you put it, conditions, because often the conditions in the, at the college, either the, 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 the dormitory conditions or often the food um, was abhorrent. And, uh, you know, people would find, uh, you know, insects and vermin in their soup and you would have the, you know, vermin riot. I, we, there was there was no such thing, but there was a cabbage riot, like a bad cabbage riot. Mm -hmm. um, it was and, at Harvard. Yeah, exactly. Um, but some of them actually were about teaching. And the one that I found really fascinating, and I wish I could have written a whole book about it, uh, was hmm. the Connick Section Rebellion at Yale. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a fantastic tell that story. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> That one's super interesting because what the students rebelled against was um, uh, a new system in which they were actually asked to apply the theory of conic sections instead of simply recite it. Got it. Can you believe the cheek? Exactly. Right. You know, it, it, it was a lot easier to memorize a couple of theorems of which, again, you have a limited understanding and recite them than actually apply them. And, and when uh, Yale decided that what you were actually going to have to do was, uh, you know, uh, use these theorems and demonstrate that you could apply them to a problem, um, people's grades started to sink and they had the conic section rebellion. Like, no, we're not going to do this. Like, let's go back to just reciting those theorems, please. And then the result was they expelled, as you said, I think it's, this is when they expelled half the class oh, yeah. or it half the student body. And yeah. also they did, they, they did not recommend them to be for acceptance at any yeah. other institution yeah. either. They really put really, the black, you know, right? Like in addition yeah. to picking them out, 
what they tried to do was uh, make their names mud at every other elite school that they that they could have transferred to. Hmm. Well, there's a there's a book there for someone who's listening. Yeah, because uh, it's uh, it'd be fascinating to track them uh, those the the boys who were expelled and yeah, find out what happened to them. Like that in this book. I mean, the book is short by design, but each of these little episodes. Uh, I had to resist the temptation to keep going into the weeds because you're right. I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, yeah. There's a lot about instruction, but also about uh, ideas about authority and even yeah. about the way the, the system at the time, the higher education system, such as it was, worked, how these institutions intersected. I mean, it's all there. Yeah. Did they? Did Yale actually have the authority to blackball um, that yeah. many students? Well, not literally, but I think in practice they did. Yeah. I mean, did it work? That's I'm, I'm really, that'd be yeah, really curious. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so let's talk about the German invasion. Um, as I, as we said, the, uh, the first, uh, the scouts had already been arriving, um, you know, with degrees from Heidelberg and Tübingen and, and, and Berlin. Uh, yeah. but then with, uh, the creation of Johns Hopkins, it, in uh, the, the first, the beachhead is, 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 is made, uh, the Teutonic Marines arrive and begin to spread out and eventually even places like Harvard and Yale succumb, uh, what are some of the uh, results of that? Uh, the most obvious one is is that uh, research uh, takes over as the chief act of a college professor, um, even yeah. though it takes some time. Yep, um, I think I think the most important outcomes for the purposes of our discussion are um, specialization. So you don't mm -hmm. have a Mark Hopkins figure discoursing on this this kind of broad and. Uh, um, uh, uh, and all-encompassing idea of you know moral philosophy. If you're a philosopher, you study oh the philosophy of mind or you know the philosophy of religion, and um, that's what you specialize in. And most of all, that's what you lecture in. Um, mm -hmm. I think the research model is deeply connected to the lecture model. Um, first of all, a lot of that knowledge was so new at the time that it didn't appear in books. So mm -hmm. there was kind of this uh, uh, just uh, uh, kind of obvious practical reason that if you wanted the new knowledge, it had to be in lecture. But also, you know, um, the logic of specialization was such that, well, there weren't that many people who studied philosophy of mind, right? Not at that mm -hmm. time. You were one of the three of them. Um, it made sense that you would declaim in front of a whole lot of people. It was very, That's very interesting, and not that yeah. people knew it. Now, the other consequence that I think is very unfortunate is there's some very bad news in all of this for teaching. Um, I, I, doing a lecture well is really hard. Um, uh, there were some people who clearly could do it and many others who couldn't. But more than that, with the rise of what you call the German invasion, there's just a diminution of both attention and concern about teaching. Not that there had been a golden age before then, but there were figures like Hopkins that were famous for teaching and for most of all for engagement, which I think is the key word here with undergrads. Well, once you start creating graduate schools and once you start fetishizing research, it's going to be harder to both promote and sustain that engagement. And my favorite story, which I've never been able to fully source and including the book for that reason, but it appears in the work of Hugh Hawkins, who was like the great scholar of Johns Hopkins. He was himself a Hopkins product, um, historian at Amherst, and he wrote several quite excellent books about the history of Johns Hopkins. And since you mentioned it, it, was, it wasn't just the first place to you know, hire multiple PhDs. Johns Hopkins was set up solely as a graduate institution. 
Um, mm-hmm. That was going to be its raison d'etre. It was going to have undergrads. But after about 10 years, it won't surprise your listeners to know that that became economically untenable because undergrads are the cash register. Um, they still are. Um, so they start taking undergrads and the story that appears in Hawkins' work, but I've never been able to fully source and his source is ambiguous, is one of the early professors, a guy named Henry Rowland, and mm-hmm. said to him, so professor, these, these undergrads are going to come to your, your lab today. Uh, what are you going to do with them? And he said, I shall neglect them. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a graduate of Johns Hopkins. As am I. Uh, and, uh, they were still telling that story uh, when I was an undergraduate. I don't know yeah, if it's true or not, but that was that's that was certainly it, it, it fit in with the professor who announced uh, 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 who will remain nameless. Uh, I hope to have him on the podcast someday. Who announced the class? Uh, I have certain priorities in life: my work, my family, basketball, my graduate students, and then you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. I'm laughing because that's appalling. Um, even if it didn't cost a gazillion dollars, it would be appalling. But yeah. it does. it's especially appalling. But, you know, I was one of the lucky ones out because I was a grad student there. Yeah. This was set up for grad students and it continued to be. I mean, my understanding is in recent years, they've tried to leaven that some, which is which is good. But we used to joke in grad school that we thought that should be on the coat of arms, like instead of like, you know, very tossed or whatever the hell they had on it, you know. Yeah. I shall very tough. Yeah. yeah. Yep, uh, that was uh, yeah. It bred a certain esprit de corps amongst undergrad. Among, it must be said amongst undergraduates. It's like yeah. as I often say, it's like Paris Island. Uh, no yeah. one likes it at the time, but everyone looks back at it fondly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, so that, that special, that's a really interesting point about specialization, because as you chronicle, it takes a while for the PhD to catch on, but specialization catches on a lot faster. It's also an interesting point about the lecture, which I had not considered until this book. Um, you know, I always think of the lecture as a medieval uh, relic, um, at the time was because there were no books and people needed to have, uh, have a, a lecture about what was in the book, but the lecture does. You're, it's so true that the lecture does change its um, tenor and direction when you have so few specialists at, uh, yep. available. And and then of course it generated an endless stream of jokes and complaints about boring lectures. And mm-hmm. I fill a whole book with those. You know, the most famous one is attributed to Mark Twain. But of course, just like things attributed to Winston Churchill, it turns out he didn't say it. And the most important <laughs> one is yeah, the lecture system is the system where you something passes from the, the, the notes of the professor to the notebook of the student without entering the brain of either. And yeah. I, um, of course, that's attributed to Twain. But alas, we have no evidence that he said it. So the uh, specialization in this 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 model is appropriated um, by so many of the of the largest and wealthiest as, uh, of schools in America, uh, but there's also fairly uh, fairly soon there's a resistance against it, and it comes in a rather strange uh, proponent in the Woodrow Wilson, who is one of the products of Hopkins right. and right. one of its uh, one of its early PhDs, yeah. um, who yet decides that. Uh, there has to be a greater emphasis on teaching at Princeton. And it's sort yeah. of one of the reasons that he finds it a lot easier to be elected governor of New Jersey uh, yeah. than being president of, of Princeton. Because there's resistance. Yeah. He even tried to fire a couple professors who were bad teachers and he succeeded in one case, but he never tried again because it was so brutal. 
You know, mm -hmm. I mean, so much resistance from all kinds of people, including the person's colleagues and the trustees. But to get back to your point, you know, Wilson is a, just an incredibly fascinating figure. Like, if you're an American historian, and you're not interested in Woodrow Wilson, like, no matter what you think of him, then you yeah. bag it and go to law school, you know, because, yeah, you, know, right. <laughs> some, you know, the, you know, you know, you know, from the slave South, very much a Southerner, grew up in Virginia, as you mentioned, gets his PhD at, at Hopkins and then becomes this sort of interesting academic ladder climber, you know, mm -hmm. taught at Bryn Mawr, um, mm -hmm. obviously at all women's college and probably the most distinctive one or uh, elite one. Taught uh, he heavily modeled after Hopkins by a, 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 a woman who had a thing for Daniel Quint Gilman, or so I was told in lectures. That, uh, yeah, um, allegedly. Um, allegedly, yeah. At Wesley, and then, then ends up at Princeton. And, you know, um, uh, uh, Wilson, um, uh, even though he was himself a quite a famously good lecturer and admired for that, um, becomes quite disillusioned when he becomes the president of Princeton and just sees a lot of people up there jawing, the students sitting back, sometimes reading the paper, often sleeping, and we could fill a whole book about uh, sleep mm -hmm. lectures because everyone joked about that. And he said, this isn't good enough. Um, and what we need to do is, and this will be a recurring theme in college teaching reform, is we have to create smaller and more intimate spaces where, first of all, the, the, um, uh, the teacher and the students know each other better. But more than that, where they, 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 they discuss ideas, um, that there's an exchange about ideas. We're not going to transfer knowledge from one head to the other. What we're going to do as mutual learners is to discuss it. And so this is where the precept system comes from. He hires these uh, 40 some odd young, pretty much fresh out of places like Hopkins professors, but he doesn't call them tutors. And the reason is tutor was associated with all that uh, that nasty prank stuff that you were alluding to earlier. These people are tutors, but he doesn't use that term because of its negative connotation. So that's where the term precept comes from. And they still call them that at Princeton. Um, hmm. And what these people were supposed to do was to meet in small groups with the students. And initially, they, they weren't assigned to any particular course. They were supposed to just like meet with the students and talk about everything the students was lear were learning and then like suggest further readings about things that the student was interested in and discuss each class and the connections between them, which is a fabulous idea. But it turned out that it required the tutor to be sort of a super teacher because they would have to know about all the material and all the reading and the four or five classes that the, that the kid, the undergrad was taking. And that turned out to be untenable. So, so eventually, within a few short years, they assigned the precepts to courses, which is, you know, that becomes the standard issue thing, like a TA. Mm -hmm. So they're TAs before TAs, but they've got their, they've got an advanced degree. Yes. Um, and, and this is a sort of a, but um, they find it impossible to rise up the Princetonian ladder. Is yeah. That, is that... yeah, they do because they taught too much. Like we'll hire yeah. them for five years. And the idea was, you know, hopefully you get some things into print in that time. Right. And then you go on to some other job. And some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. And one of the reasons was they were so overwhelmed with their teaching duties. Mm -hmm. So that's also a, a familiar theme oh, in American absolutely. higher education. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, um, 
and also at this time, already, we saw it with Mark Hopkins, pedagogy is personality, the charismatic person. But you have quote after quote after quote of, of administrators throwing up their hands and saying, I don't know what college teaching is or how to do it. You just have to hire the right man. And for the most part, they do mean the right man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and that's ironic, too, because there's a lot of self-flagellation that goes into this this discussion. You know, a lot of people say, you know, what we're doing is we're just sort of creating these kind of academic drones. You know, um, these these people who were basically liked by people like us, i.e. professors, but won't really be liked by 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 young people um, because they're too narrow. They're too dweeby. I mean, that wasn't the adjective of the time, but that's really what's being said. So I found in the in the 20s and 30s, which was the heyday of personality testing, because the corporations are using it, right? This is the birth of the so-called personnel perspective, you know, um, and the idea that in these gigantic institutions, we need tests and we need other sorts of ways to kind of sort and slot people. Um, and so I found instances of universities ad- administering personality tests to um professorial candidates. Yeah. I, I love the University of Iowa test. They yeah. look for psychopathic tendencies, which is <laughs> actually very very wise, actually. You know, very wise. <laughs> God, I, I mean, by that standard, half of the people that taught me in grad school would have never gotten uh, up. Yeah. Well, you know, there it is. Um, <laughs> they would have opened up a lot of jobs for the rest of us. Um, uh, if they, Who knows what would happen if they administered that test again? Oh, God. Um, God help us. This is this is what's very interesting is that this these personality tests are part of this uh, what the critics would have called gig, called gigantism or yep. perhaps Fordism in the twenties. I mean, this is what yep. corporations are doing. So universities already, you know, it's not as if this is a new thing. Uh, universities adopting corporate practices um, yep. or acting like businesses. Um, they're right. doing it in the twenties or thirties, and uh, and in really in many ways, um, you know, David Staley and I have talked about this a couple times on the podcast. Um, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, the 20s and the 30s are one of the most refreshing moments of higher education reform in American history. Yeah. And there's so there's so much fruitful stuff going on. It's a whole book to be written about that. I don't know if yeah, it's been really, done, but yeah. just about that period. And I, and I would say that, you know, everyone has sort of a favorite part of their book. Uh, yeah. And that's probably the favorite part of mine because I knew the least about it. And because there was so much uh, discussion and debate um, about these questions. Indeed, it often went under the title, the age of experiment or the age mm-hmm. of experimentation. There was a cognizance on the part of lots of people in the system, including students, that there was lots of innovation happening and lots of critique. And obviously they're connected. So the other thing that I was surprised about, I know, Al, you mentioned student protests, but um, a lot of the experimentation is spawned by student protests exclusively yes. about college teaching. So in the 20s, there's actually a student conference about college teaching in upstate New York where over 50 different institutions send student delegates to a that's fantastic. about that's, that's, college teaching, which is amazing. And they, they asked James Harvey Robinson, who was this you know distinguished historian at Columbia and very much a critic of college teaching, to give the keynote. And Robinson was very droll and quite hilarious. And the keynote basically just says, listen, um, if this is going to get better, it's going to have to be because of you. And mm. I've been doing book talks in the past two weeks. And when students dial in that, I say what Robinson said. I just say, mm-hmm. this is all I know. Like I'm on the back nine, right? And yeah. I'm at the tail end of my career. And I don't know where the changes have come from, but it's not going to be from dudes like me. 
You know, if anything is going to be different, it's going to have to be because of you. And that's what Robinson told these kids in the twenties. Um, the, uh, there are a lot of institutional changes. Uh, some of them still exist. I mean, the, the one that people might know is the university of Chicago and Hutchins and the introduction of the college there and, and so on. But then there's also St. John's, uh, in Annapolis and Santa Fe. And those are sort of, those are outliers now it seems, but there actually are many, many, many more. There's the Wisconsin Experimental Project. There's Rollins College in Orlando, Florida, which yeah. I knew was a pretty a pretty place, but I didn't realize that it was so, it was a, such a institution of of reform or oh, had been reform my institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rollins College hires a guy named Hamilton Holt to be their president. Hamilton Holt was was not an academic and proudly not. He was a newspaperman, um, and uh, he he um, realized that he didn't learn a whole lot in college. Um, uh, but he did learn a whole lot as a newspaperman, both as a journalist and then later as an editor. And the place he learned was in editorial meetings. Hmm. He said, well, why don't we make a college based on that model? Hmm. Um, uh, and the editorial meeting became what he called the conference. So each day you would go in for a couple hours with a professor and you would work on a shared problem, just like happens in a newsroom, right? What are we going to cover mm-hmm. today? Or... I think a better analogy would be, how should we describe the following set of events? How should we analyze and explain them? Um, which is what you do at an editorial meeting. So he said, let's let's do that in the classroom. That's brilliant, really. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's someone could employ that listening, could employ that in class like next term uh, without, <laughs> yeah. without much, without, yeah. Although sadly at Rollins, you know, uh, like a lot of these experiments, it, it, uh, um, it went into a, it had a brief flourish and then it fizzled and that yeah. happened to well, all of these things. And there were several reasons for it, but one of the big, yeah, what, 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 what are the reasons that for, for, for the sort of ending of most of these experiments? Yeah. I mean, some of them get closed down because of a pressure from outside, like the Wisconsin right. experiment. Um, yeah. but w- what are, what's, I, I was surprised by your assessment of why ultimately they failed. Yeah, well, I think Rollins is actually a good example of why they failed. And uh, uh, here's why. I think that the professors found that they didn't really know how to fill up that two and a half hours because they hadn't been taught that way. Right. And they hadn't been prepared really to do it. Um, Back to your point about personality, because Hamilton Holt was such a a college hater. He said, you know, I'm not going to hire the guy who wrote the best book. I'm going to hire what he called golden personalities, which is a funny phrase. And and um, uh, whether he did or not, these golden personalities, they're a product of the same system that Ham, uh, that Hamilton holds is critiquing. And so mm-hmm. their idea of teaching is going to be quite different from what he's envisioning. And a lot of them said, like, I can't keep these kids engaged for that long. It gets very hot in Florida for long swaths of the year. We're up here sweltering on the third floor and nothing is happening. You know, I ask a question. Nobody's answering. You know what this is? This is kindergarten. Um, that's what some of these kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, these dejected professors said, these are kindergarten methods, you know, the other thing is the students didn't have enough incentive to actually prepare for this. Um, so nobody's preparing, you know, if you want it to work, if tomorrow's discussion is going to be, and this is one example from the book, like, um, what's the meaning of the Adam and Eve story? And what does it tell us about the way that Christians have thought about, um, a sin and about gender? Well, if you want to have something interesting to say about that, you're going to have to do some reading. 
Um, and uh, it turned out that a lot of kids who went to Rollins were much more interested in having fun, especially late at night, than they were in reading for their conferences. Um, uh, there was no homework. That was by design as well, because, you know, uh, Holt said, look, you know, a lot of the homework I did was busy work. They're going to be in class all day playing with these ideas. They can have the evening off. Well, they did have the evening off, right? They partied well into it um, and then showed up these conferences without really having done a whole lot. So you can understand why it didn't work. Mm, yeah. The um, emphasis on personality also means that uh, eventually uh, people throw up their hands and say, well, we just can't find the right personalities. Correct. Um, and that, you know, that's been an eternal problem in the struggle to professionalize teaching. Um, you know, the book's called The Amateur Hour, incidentally, not because teaching is bad. I've gotten that a lot this week. And when millions of <laughs> people are doing it, right? To say teaching is X is a ridiculous statement, right? If there are a million and a half college professors, I can't tell you that teaching is bad or that teaching is terrific. I'm sure it's both those things and a million things in between. The reason I call it the amateur hour isn't because teaching is bad. It's because teaching hasn't been professionalized, that we don't have really um, a standard understanding of what good practice is. And most of all, we don't have systems to um, see if we're, um, uh, if we're, practicing it for if we're if we're abiding by it um and there are a lot of reasons for that but i think you just put your finger on one of them um uh, the more we associate teaching with personality the less amenable it seems to professional improvement right it's like either you got that you got that teaching gene uh which is a term i saw a lot or you know like, how is any new kind of professional training or evaluation going to alter that? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about br briefly this, uh, student evaluations, uh, which turn out to have a much, a much a longer history than I imagined. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, in fact, when, when did you find the first student evaluation? When does that date? Oh, they date to the 20s. I mean, again, a lot of really, as you were saying earlier, a lot of really fascinating and important stuff dates to the 20s. That's because the institutions grew at just such a rapid rate then. And they grew because it was overall a time of prosperity, although, of course, not uniformly. And most of all, because women were going. So, you know, in institutions like Ann Arbor, like the University of Michigan, you find these student accounts of people saying, okay, I went to this classroom, it's supposed to fit 100. They were trying to pack 250 in there, kids on the floor, kids in the hallway. There's this one dude up front. He's got a microphone. It doesn't work. And he's mumbling. Why am I here? And why am I paying for this? And so, you know, student evaluations had this sort of interesting Sami's dot sort of underground history, right? Now we think of them as institutional practice because they are. But the mm. institutions eventually co-opted them, right? They were created by students, um, the Comfy at Harvard, the, quote, confidential guide to freshman courses, um, still yeah. called the Comfy, which is sort of a hilarious, um, you know, Harvard waspism. Um, uh, that's a good example, right? I mean, it's, it's student-originated, student-driven. Um, and and uh, in the 20s, 30s, and even in the 40s, there are some, a small number of, of professors and administrators who are suggesting that the university adopt this practice and they're routinely shut down. This other guy became obsessed with it. Nobody knows that. It's a guy named Franz Schneider. Franz I love him. He's, he's, he's sort of my hero now. Yeah. Yeah. He was a professor of German uh, at Cal at Berkeley. Um, and he 
was despondent at how poor the teaching was. And the reason he knew is he talked to his students and he started collecting evaluations from the students and self-publishing them. He self-published two books of his, <laughs> on his Cal Berkeley student evaluation and pissed off a lot of people. He's a narc and a rat. Oh yeah, and just and then kept showing up in the university senate and saying, "Look, why don't we do this?" And you know the people and you know the, the other professors and the administrators are like, "Why don't we not?" You know, <laughs> why don't you go away someplace far away? Is not a popular figure. It's it's extraordinary. Um, why don't we uh, move forward into the late forties and fifties? Um, we know, uh, of course, people uh, will know that things uh, changed even more dramatically. Gigantism um, spread with the GI Bill and uh, inf massive influx of people into uh, the universities. Uh, people um, talk about an, uh, first co uh, generation college students. Um, that was that was the moment for them. Yeah. Um, and also, as my father, I think, was a very was like seventeen and forty eight when he went off to to college, and so he was like basically hot bunking with six guys in a room designed for two. Yeah. Uh, the all the other five had like fought their way across the Pacific or you know uh, been in the Battle of the Balls or something like that, and they were there to like get a degree and go back home to the wife and kids they already had. Yeah. Uh, and they were not tolerant of bad professors um, yeah. and they made their, they made their views very clear. So there is, and, and a lot of the guys that were teaching them were also in some, some of them uh, were also veterans. So it was a very interesting moment in uh, student professor relations. Oh, hugely so. And just the volume. I mean, I, I don't know why I'd forgotten this along the way, but until I wrote this book, uh, well, I remembered that, by 1947, half the students at our universities are vets. Yeah. That, right? I mean, the war only ended, you know, in, in, uh, in the summer of 45, yeah. right? And two years later, half the students are veterans. And so, you know, you have, um, uh, you know, not just millions of new students, but you have um, Fertile Acres and Veteran Village. You know, these, yep. these, these were these communities where the vets came home and, you know, like in, in 15 minutes, they start a degree, get married and have a baby. Uh, yeah. you know, these, these people have been, you know, away for a long time. And how should we put this delicately? Um, you know, I starved for, um, uh, the, you know, uh, the physical attentions of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. um, so they had babies almost immediately while they were in college. Um, yeah. But they're also tough customers, right? And so you find these really interesting accounts from these XTIs. You know, it's like they're like, look, you know, I fought it like Guadalcanal or the Battle of the Bulge. Like, am I going to listen to this Joker just go on or, or or fill the blackboard with you know just names and dates or my favorite example, the boiling points of different substances? Like some chemistry teacher did that. You just had to copy them down and then memorize them. You know, and the yeah. GI like no. Um, but they overperformed in the classroom. You know, we forget that the GI Bill had a lot of critics. Now, of course, we look upon that it as this great uh, achievement of, you know, sort of uh, mid-century American democracy. And I, I think that's correct. Uh, but yeah. we forget that figures like Hutchins at, at Chicago and Conan at Harvard were deeply skeptical. Um, they said, we're going to make the university, Hutchins said, into a hobo village. A hobo mm -hmm. village. Uh, hobo being what they called, you know, homeless people. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so I think the DI story is really important because that steps up the critique of teaching. And that's sort of the, you know, it, it's, it's the kind of contrapuntal theme of my book. Um, every time the university grows, there are new faces. Often those new faces are criticizing what's happening in the classroom. They're like, huh, you know, what is this? And then you get different reforms. And in the Cold War, I mean, one of the interesting things that happens is, first of all, there's yet another effort by people like the Woodrow Wilson Foundation to get the, quote, best men. So there's all kinds of money poured into recruiting people for the academic profession. It's kind of interesting to think about because we don't do that now, right? We don't do that now because there are like 10 people for every job, right? Yeah. Uh, or 100 if you, you know, write about, you know, 19th century literature. Um, uh, uh, back then that wasn't the case because there's so many new students you need new professors so there's this new drive to kind of find the best men and sort of persuade people look don't go to law school and be a drone don't go work for a bank right be a professor Um, and then also educational tv which is connected in the following ways once we find a really good personality to use the term why not expose everybody to him Right. So if so, 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 so if Al is just a terrific teacher, why should Al's terrificness be limited just to his own students in his classroom when we now have this fabulous new electronic machine that can telescope Al to everybody? And this is uh, this is the dream of none other than uh, Uncle Milty, uh, Milton yeah. Eisenhower. Yeah, brother yeah. of the, pre, the, the the more important president Eisenhower of Johns Hopkins yeah. University, who said that uh, mediocre professors would be re- now replaced by the greatest professors. Or as a California governor said, you can now sit in the quiet and comfort of his living room and receive a college education. Yeah. It is not entirely fantastic to consider the possibility that courses given on television could even lead to a degree. And that was said in 1952 by Earl Warren, of all people. Uh, yes. That was an episode I had no idea that all the same things people say about computers and distance learning were being said in the early 50s. That blew me away. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, and, and you know, it is, um, it, it is cast as the savior. Um, it's a savior because, first of all, it's going to make it uh, cheaper and more efficient to teach all these new bodies. Right. Sounds familiar. Yep. Check. Right. But secondly, what it's going to do is... It's going to allow us to share the best teachers with the largest number of people. Um, yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the Eisenhowers because most, I think probably there are a lot of Americans who don't realize that Dwight and Milton Eisenhower were hugely important figures in higher education, right? So when, when Eisenhower was done with the war and NATO, he becomes the president of Columbia University. And and his brother, who had been, by the way, in, in, in charge of the... Uh, um, uh, of the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second mm-hmm. World War, then became the president of Johns Hopkins. Uh, so they're they're important educational figures. We often forget that. And um, that doesn't really go anywhere. But I, I think we should also mention um, B.F. Skinner is also involved in this. Could you describe very briefly the uh, the teaching machine? Because that was yes. another yeah. another. Uh, but the, the the new is old, or the old is new again, kind of moment. Yes, and this gets into the late 50s and early 60s. And B.F. Skinner, of course, you know, famous uh, behaviorist at Harvard. And um, uh, he, too, is dissatisfied with his classes because Skinner thinks of learning as a matter of stimulus and response. He thought all behavior was a matter of that. 
And he famously said, you know, in most college classes, there's no stimulus and there's no response. Um, so let's make one. Um, let's create a machine that puts knowledge on little disks. And what happens is you read some material and then you get tested by the machine. And if you pass, you get rewarded and you go on to the next module. And hmm. that's what the teaching machine is. And Skinner believed that this was going to be the solution to education around the world. Um, yeah. One of the things he correctly recognized was that formal education was going to become ubiquitous. You know, Skinner was was wrong about some things, but he was right about some other things. And, well, it, it, and, it's amazing how much of the, I mean, the clicker, which I think I introduced into my classroom in 2006, 2007, to get instantaneous responses or to give an instant quiz. I yeah. mean, that's just... That's, that's, it's the idea right there. I mean, in, in a way it's, it, it's presented very differently, but it's the same idea. Definitely. And, you know, Benedict Carey wrote a book recently just about sort of summarizing new knowledge about learning. And it turns out that being quizzed about stuff is a really good way to learn it. Uh, this mm -hmm. is why, you know, in your dorm, when you were a kid, you might've quizzed each other about the test the next day. And that really helped you succeed on the test. Um, so Skinner wasn't wrong about that, but it turned out that, first of all, those sorts of systems worked much better with learning that had a singular answer. Um, so the Skinner system was very good in helping you remember when the War of 1812 was or who was married in Grant's tomb. But the Skinner system was a little less useful if your goal was to, say, write an essay about the causes and consequences of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how do the 60s fit into this story? Because I'm 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 particularly curious um, now that you've been examining American student protests <laughs> for a, a long durée. Um, how do the st 60s student protests actually match previous student protests, uh, perhaps more than I might have thought or you might have thought? Yeah, well, I think the way they match them is there was a lot of focus on college teaching, uh, which mm -hmm. I wasn't aware of until I did this research. So um, you, you take the paradigmatic early expression of student protest, the Port Huron Statement of 1962. You look at the Port Huron Statement, there are a bunch of passages about teaching. Um, of course, yeah. it is, you know, it's about the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? And it's about civil rights, and that's all there. But then they also say things like, oh, and by the way, our professors are just paid to be researchers, right? They don't engage us in the questions that we care about, and we're becoming IBM cards, do not fold, bend, or mutilate. Mm -hmm. um, and the free speech movement that we associate with Mario Savio, um, of course, it's targeted at the war in Vietnam and defense research and civil rights, right? But Savio himself is a very, very sharp critic of the way that teaching happened at Cal. And especially, and here's the recurring theme, it's impersonality, right? You know, yeah. we become these drones. It's in some ways a repeat of the 20s, right? And the critique of Fordism. They're putting us in these enormous, enormous rooms and asking to spit out knowledge. We have become, uh, this has become a knowledge factory, right? And we've become widgets in it. Yeah. The the uh, the man on the, professors aren't uh, C. Wright Mills with cowboy boots and a motorcycle. They're yeah. uh, men, in, men, in, men in gray flannel suits. Precisely, right? With their horn rim glasses, right? Trotting off to do their consulting, um, and, you know, as per Al, your story, putting undergrads fifth or sixth or maybe no plus. Yeah, well, talk to his family about that. Um, <laughs> after, the work does come first. Um, the, um, 
interesting to see also that the hatred of TAs is very much part of the 60s. Oh, yeah. And the reason it becomes part of the 60s is because the burden on the TAs is so great. I mean, the TAs, you know, if you were writing a book about them, you would call it the man that nobody liked. Now, we, yeah. the, you know, the men and women that nobody liked. Uh, and here's what happens. Um, there's another, of course, huge burst in uh, student enrollment and in college building. And this one also has roots in federal policy, not the GI Bill, but, you know, the Higher Ed Act, you know, Lyndon Johnson says, you know, whoever has the uh, kind of the wish and the ability to go to college, the Fed should help them do that. And the Higher Ed Facilities Act, which is this uh, kind of fascinating and understudied piece of federal legislation that frees up federal dollars to build bricks and mortar. And there's mm -hmm. a moment, Al, in the late 60s where there is a new community college opening on the average one a day. Yeah, no, yeah, and I've, I've often thought about this. If you go to various uh, what were sort of regional teachers' colleges, whether they be in New Jersey or Western Illinois, and look around and see that the buildings uh, that they sort of the heart of the campus is all built within uh, two years yeah. of each other, and it's you know, up and it's it's sort of that you know that low slung mall looking yep. you know come on people yep. now smile on your brother but I'm or not really going sort, to because this that place kind is of like aluminum sort of architecture. Aluminum um, and, and, and brick you know, high-rise. It, all, it yeah. all dates. It all dates from that era. You know. Um, uh, so you know you have this. You know this this metastasizing of the institution, um, and then obviously you have kind of deeper uh, and enormous social rifts that involve the questioning of authority, um, of expert authority, of government authority, of adult authority. Right. You have all those different protests. Um, again, the war, civil rights, all that. But, you know, that does have an enormous effect on the classroom, because what you see is you see critiques of that authority within the classroom, mm -hmm. precisely classes that are designed to critique that authority. So uh, one of my favorite examples, Martin Duberman, it's a name that some listeners might recognize because he later became this you know, extremely prominent, both scholar and activist of, uh, of uh, gay rights. Um, but in the mid 60s, he's still a kind of a youngish history professor at Princeton University. And he's very much a product of the protests and um, the atmosphere that I was just describing. So he says, look, next, next semester, I'm not going to give people a syllabus and have two papers, a midterm and a final. I'm going to give them a suggested set of books and each week, they're going to talk about what they read or not, right? Hmm. They're going to do what they do because this course is not a course in which I instruct them. This is a course in which they're going to teach each other and themselves based on their own interests and initiative. What happened? <laughs> it doesn't end well. Um, uh, what happened is, you know, a little bit like the conference method in Rollins, not that many people did the reading, any reading. There were lots of awkward silences. And um, uh, uh, sadly, Duberman writes about that, this afterwards in, in what I've always called the idiom of the jaded lover or the mm -hmm. uh, jaded ex-lover, right? Somebody that was in love with something and then, uh, you know, finds that it rejects them. Um, and this is a recurring pattern in all these experiments. When you find material written by the professors at the end, they typically say things like, you know, I thought people were ready for this sort of freedom. And I was wrong. 
um, uh, the system, and that's always what they said in the 60s, and they typically capitalized it, is just too totalizing. It's too strong. And these people have been weaned on the system. And what that means is they've been weaned on a set of external incentives. And if you take those away, they won't do jack. And it's really sad. The uh, set, what's really sad is um, page 172, people in market in their own copies, is Arizona professor J.T. Borhek. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he said when he began, he never thought he would become one of those old men who droned to their students from crisp yellow notes. He said, but in the end, we all become poor teachers, or at least come to know how poor we have always been. In the long run, we get to sleep in our own lectures. Yeah. Yeah, that's really depressing. And he was one. I mean, there's so many people out there, you know, because these stories have never been written. I didn't realize that there were kind of people who were famous for being both good teachers and also critics of teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, and every campus had them. And this guy, Vorek, I didn't know anything about him. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was incredibly sharp um, and uh, unflinching in his denunciation of the system. I mean, one of the things Vorek pointed out was all these things that Martin Duberman was trying, you couldn't even try them in Arizona. There are too many kids, right? Yeah, Martin right, Duberman right. Had, the, had, had, let's just call it the privilege of experimentation, right? It's like, I can't do that, man. Like, I've got to teach intro to Soch, right? And there'll be a hundred or a thousand kids there. I mean, listeners should know, there were places at University of Minnesota, intro to psych had 2,000. And we're not yeah. talking 2,000 on Zoom. We're talking 2,000 in like a stadium. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, um, uh, Vorak is like, okay, what are my choices here, really, given these material realities? And you don't have to be a hidebound Marxist to get the point, right? Um, you know, I'm so incredibly privileged in my own circumstances. You know, my classes are so small and my students are so well prepared. Um, you know, I, I've just, you know, I just, I won the lottery, you know, yeah. that, that hasn't been the case for most of our professors. And they're just these numbers, these absolute limits on what they can do as teachers because of the gigantic spaces that we put them in. Yeah. And, and then, yes, it's, it's very true. And, and of course, as you know, better than most, having said this yourself, I believe in one or five or 10 columns, most of our discussion of higher education is about the top 50 schools or even the top 20 schools. Correct. Correct. Uh, and uh, uh, so then when I first started college teaching, uh, fresh from Oxford, uh, I found myself going from tutorials to teaching a five, five load. <laughs> uh, with about 30 kids in each section. Oh, no, I had one section with 12. That was like, that was like a tutorial. Yeah. Um, you know, that, but that was, I was the new kid. I was, that was the, that was the, you know, I was all the, it was, that was the, that was the deal. Um, everyone else was lucking out. They lucked out at just a four, four. <laughs> and, and, and it's so ironic, you know, my very first job was at Westchester University, uh, just outside of Philadelphia, formerly the state normal school. And yeah. uh, I had a four-four there, which is standard at you know at, at kind of uh, um, you know you know mid-tier uh, public universities. And then I I, I got to NYU um, where I taught for twenty years, and it was a two-two, and people were complaining about it because you know somebody said you know at Harvard it's a one-one. Yeah, and I'm like, dude, yeah. you should really get out more. And I, I, yeah, I, that's what I that's what I thought when I encountered the three two. I was yeah. like, and they were they were complaining about that the three rather than <laughs> the two. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. yeah. And this is 
big theme in the classes I teach at Penn. You know, I teach a freshman seminar called Why College? Question mark uh, Historical Perspectives. And the very first day I say, look, the first thing we've got to get our arms around is that most of college in America looks nothing like what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and that's increasingly so. So, you know, Al, I mean, just think about this. Um, I went to college. I, um, uh, I went when I was about 18. I completed in four years. I was residential and I majored in a liberal art. Um, I'm going to guess that all four of those things applied to you too, uh, yep. when you to Hopkins. Yep. We are now in the radical minority. Yeah, we are. Uh, you no. know, because all and, things that we think and, of total experiences have become the exceptional ones. Yeah. Um, and not enough professors teaching history often realize that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that we're, that we, we, uh, the, the assumption is always that they basically have your interests. Uh, when you confront them and you have to start realizing how radically different they are. And that includes even at Penn. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, they just, they aren't like you. So how are you going to deal with that? Um, right. What um, I, I, I want to, we, we could keep on going and going, but I just want to ask you a few questions about how you, how the book came to be and how you put it together. Um, but I want to get to the stuff I asked in the introduction. Um, uh, when we were talking before we began recording, uh, you were a lot less depressed about the book uh, than I was, even though you wrote it. And I was wondering if John w- did not feel that he was caught and time was a flat circle as he wrote this, as he as you kept you, uh, digging up these incredible quotes from archive, by the way, archive after archive after archive. So let's talk about the research first. What did you have to do for this to, to uh, dig up this stuff? Because the list of college archives is really, it's yeah. like, uh, two and a half pages, I think, in the at the end. Well, first um, of all, a big shout out to you, the Fletcher Foundation for giving me money to visit them. I mean, without that, yeah. I've never done it. But you know, Al, it's interesting. Um, the places I went to were just the places where I could find evidence that would take me into the classroom. You know, and uh, it's always indirect, right? Because almost all evidence is. Mm-hmm. The great irony of this research is that as I say somewhere in the book, college teaching is a public activity that's done in private. It's very strange, right? I mean, obviously it's highly public in the sense that we have these, you know, gigantic classes and all these human beings in them, but the door is closed usually um, and nobody else is watching. Um, So how do you actually figure out what happened? And, you know, what I found was the archives were absolutely critical because in the archives, what you could find were, um, the committee meetings of the different professors that were told to do something, something about this problem. So it's true that there hasn't been a huge amount of change in college teaching, but there's been a huge amount of talk about college teaching. <laughs> only, the only way to get at that was really through private correspondence and minutes, you know? Um, and, you know, if I didn't get into the archives of UCLA, I wouldn't have known that even after the state ruled that TAs couldn't teach their own classes, like as the, you know, the instructor of record, the UCLA just kept doing it. And I find one administrator writing to another saying, look, I don't think we'll get caught. Um, we don't really have a choice here because we don't have the bodies. So just go for it. And don't tell anyone else. Um, but I should say apologetically, going back to your comment about you know, the bias towards elite universities, I think, frankly, the biggest weakness of the book, which was unavoidable uh, at this stage, is that it has the same bias. Why? Because which places have the wherewithal 
and the staff to keep all this stuff, right? Yeah. Lo yeah. and behold, elite schools. So I would say the bulk of my archival um, uh, material did come from places like Yale and Princeton. There are exceptions to that. So, you know, I found great stuff randomly at Cal State Dominguez Hills, which is this fascinating institution uh, in the LA area, which is almost all Hispanic students, but it has like 25,000 students. And that was another sobering thing just about doing this book, just how little I knew about higher ed. Like Al, I had never heard of Dominguez Hills. Like I didn't even know it existed. Um, And it's got this fascinating history, again, very much uh, attached to the history of mostly Mexican-Americans. And and just for a bunch of reasons, uh, including the fact that some random donor just gave them money to archive and preserve things, they had fabulous stuff. But they were the exception because of how inequality works in this country. So um, uh, there are other ways around this problem. Almost everybody had a student newspaper, and so I could draw on those, and I did. But the archival stuff mostly comes from the rich places and kind of the big flagship schools like like UCLA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get back to that, you, you said that not a lot changes in American teaching. And the, as I've said, time is a flat circle. I also thought sometimes I was trapped in a very strange episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. There's a sort of a time loop, but it involved American higher education, not the crew of the Enterprise. Um, and... <laughs> Did, did, did you, do you have that feeling? I mean, why, uh, since von Ranke, at least, historians are supposed to study change over time, I thought. Um, yeah. That's like a, that's a dictum. And there have <laughs> been changes, but there's, there's, it's amazing the band of possibility in which these changes yeah. exist. I, you know, I think that puts it really well. You know, I mean, our, our imaginations have been limited on this subject. And so the band of possibility, as you eloquently put it, is way more narrow than it should be. Um, but there has been change. I mean, the other thing I should confess is that I give the very recent past short shrift here. And that was just a strategic decision based on my word count. Uh, I just figured to use the cliche of the economist that my value added uh, was, was more in the, the, the like the longer, the longer past. Um, uh, and so the past two decades get almost no attention. And there's been really important stuff that's happened in the past two decades. And I would say the most important thing is that there's been the development of a much more robust research spine about college teaching and learning. Um, so there's a guy who's now at Temple, his name is David Gublar, who I've never met, even though it seems like he works five miles from me and I should be him. Um, uh, who wrote, I think, the best book that summarizes it. But the title is quite plaintive. It's called The Missing Course. And here's why. The point Gublar makes is in the past two decades, there has been this steady accumulation of knowledge about what college teaching is and actually can be. But it's the missing course because the vast majority of college professors, current and indeed the ones in training, aren't exposed to that research and knowledge. Hence the missing course. Yeah. Well, my guest today has been John Zimmerman. He's the author of The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. John, we could talk about this for another three hours, and we would still be have more to talk about. But thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Uh, thank you. It was fun. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. 
And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.